Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Good morning, everybody. There we go. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> I am going to be reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 24 to 32 from the ESV version. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the, long, do no, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with, one, with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that is that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, you know, sometimes you wonder, like, how is it possible for a group of people to get together regularly and for there not to be conflict? Did someone laugh? Or was that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It kind of happens, right? Is such a thing possible? You know, especially if the people are from, you know, different families, different ethnic backgrounds, different classes, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some are even from Saskatchewan. Like, how is this possible? And I'm not talking about just getting along for like a, you know, a short-term project. I'm talking about getting along for years and years and years, maybe for the rest of your life together with these people. It's pretty amazing kind of when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, we have some people here who have been in this community for more than 40 years, and they're still here, and they have great relationships with one another. Now, when it comes to kids, you know, we have to give them some rules to follow in order for these communities to work together, right? We sometimes call them community guidelines. In Kids Zone, you know, we had posters up on the wall to remind kids each Sunday uh, what the rules of conduct were. Things like, you know, keeping your feet to yourself, keep your hands to yourself, don't talk while other people are talking. You know, these kind of things that kind of help things function and help community to be established together. As a child, I had a hard time with those kind of things. Uh, I still remember my first day of kindergarten. I didn't heed the community guidelines very well, evidently, and I was disturbing the other kids who were around me, and as a result, I was sent to the principal's office. <laughs> On my very first day of school, I'm thinking, like, what kind of a teacher would do that? I'm sure it wasn't, uh, wasn't really my fault anyways, but... You know, guidelines are needed for kids like me. But it's not just kids that need these boundaries of how to get along 
within a community and how things are going to work together. You remember we talked about this a while back when we were talking about the Ten Commandments and the function that they served for the Hebrew people. I mean, things that looked like they should have been rather obvious uh, were having to be told to them. Things like don't cheat, don't steal, don't try to take your neighbor's wife away from your neighbor, don't murder your neighbor. You know, basically things that you think would be somewhat self-evident, but apparently not. You know, they needed to be constantly reminded of these things. And it was, of course, helpful stuff. And it caused them to be separate from the nations who are around them. Because believe it or not, the things that they were being warned not to do were things that were very common and even in some terms acceptable to the people groups who are around them. And that's kind of what we have going on here in even what we just heard read. The book of Ephesians has stressed what it means to be the church, to be a new people of God, leaving the old behind and putting on this new community, a new ethnic, a new family together. The church is now going to live the rest of its life together. People with no former reason to hang out or have anything to do with one another will now be the closest relationships and the support that they will have. People from all kinds of backgrounds coming together to be able to do this. And in order to do that, reminders were often needed of how to do that and why they should be motivated to do it well. And that's exactly what we have in our text here this morning. So as we get into this, allow me to first of all make three observations about this passage, overall observations before we dig into it. And the first one is that notice that these practical exhortations are very relational. And that's what I've been talking about till now. You know, our new life in Christ should change the way that we live together in community. Because our sin affects other people negatively just as our righteousness will bless others positively. But this means that we have to be members together. And membership, yes, but I'm talking about the bigger picture of what it means to be members of one another. Because think about it. If what it meant to be a Christian was just to come to a weekly service for two hours a week where everyone essentially looked ahead straightforward at a stage, I mean, that wouldn't be so hard. I mean, why would I have a disagreement or why would there be any unkind speech with someone who I didn't even really know, who I just attend a service together with? Unless maybe they took your spot in the parking lot or maybe they took that last piece of lemon loaf from the coffee bar just before you got there. Because really, how hard is it to get along with someone that you only sit together with in a worship service? Paul would not have had to write this section if that's what it meant to be the church. No need to write all this stuff and no need to read it if that's all the church is because you were never going to struggle with these things. But the church was never meant to be that way. I mean, did you know that it says in Acts chapter 2 that ever since there was the very first believers that they worshipped together in the temple each week and they met in their homes together. Every week they did both, we are told. Ever since the beginning... Well, what does that mean for us? That means that this morning we are together to hear the word, to listen, to ponder, and to turn that towards God in God-exalting worship. But that's not enough to be considered the kind of community that the New Testament talks about. Well, how do we become that? I think in addition to Sunday mornings, we need to be gathering in some form or fashion during a week together. And that's why we are rebooting our life groups for the fall. We felt this compulsion to do that. So I would say start to plan your schedules already. You've got probably about four months notice before September hits. 
What's it going to mean to make room in your schedule to gather together weekly? I think this is an important thing to do because we want to give everybody that opportunity to be together in a community that encourages one another, that worships together, not just on Sundays, but during the week as well. Another way we become this kind of community is by serving together. You know, we study the word together, we fellowship together, we serve together. I mean, discovering your spiritual gifts and using them to build up the body. You serve together with others in ministry. And that's why we're creating this volunteer coordinator position in our new Nest bylaws, helping everyone to be able to connect with the ministry because it's good for the church body as a whole and it's good for us individually as well to be able to serve together side by side with our brothers and sisters. And this is one of those ways that it uh, that these practical exhortations are given to us. This is what it means to be the church together. And that helps to get connected. It helps us to do life together. So that's the first part. That's, that's my first part on three points I wanted to make before I even started the sermon. So I got to be moving on, I guess. But on number two is that notice that also in these exhortations, they begin with a negative action, but then they're followed by a positive one. You see them side by side. That's the whole idea of like putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And as you've been reading through the New Testament, you probably see that's a common theme. Even in the scripture passage that Krista read this morning from Peter, it was the same thing that was being talked about. You know, put off those old things, put on the new things. That's a very common theme that we see. And in this passage, it's talked about in the negative sense, and then it's talked about positively. So you'll notice that as well as we're going through it. And then you'll also notice that in these exhortations, there's a theological reason given to them. Because we do these things, Paul says, because we are members of one another. We belong deeply together. And for each exhortation, there's a theological truth that lies behind it. We don't just do things for an arbitrary reason. We do things for deeply meaningful reasons. Okay, so the how and why of us getting along. And we are going to look at four things in particular. And we're going to consider how we are doing in these areas and these four areas are speaking truth, handling anger, working hard, and building each other up. And then finally, we will consider why we are able to do all of this. So number one, we are told, put away falsehood and speak truth. So it goes from the negative to the positive. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, this word falsehood is also the word lying. And depending on what translation you're reading from, it'll say either or. Lying was almost a way of life for the ancients. And essentially, every culture other than Israel practiced it robustly. It was God's covenant people that brought the importance of speaking truthfully into the world. And it was actually Christianity that established this as a virtue to be adopted in culture. Where Christianity was established, all of a sudden there was a new a culture created of what it meant to be truthful, to tell the truth, to put away falsehood, and speak the truth. If Actually, if you want to learn more about that, I would recommend Vishal Magwaldi. He's got a YouTube uh, series that's called Truth Matters. He's written a book on this as well, which I mentioned, but it's just, I think, 10 little 10-minute 10 um, snippets teaching on this kind of a thing, of how Christianity brought truth into the world and what a difference it made and how it transformed cultures and it created the cultures that we... Uh, that we appreciate to this day. For the better, it has done this. And so it was, it, was, it was the Jewish people initially and Christianity that continued to forward this. You see, just like the culture held up pride as a virtue and it despised humility, 
Lying wasn't all that far behind, really. And there's still parts in the world, and in particular parts that Christianity hasn't affected their culture, where this is still the case. But it's not just there, it's here too. I mean, we all struggle with it, we deal with it, as does our culture. I mean, you may remember when Volkswagen was lying about their fuel emissions. I mean, that was the best way to sell a car, and they were willing to lie about it in order to look good. Was it an honest mistake, or were they trying to get away with it? I mean, everything that is advertised to you is promising you something that it can never really fully deliver on. They know this, but they know it works also. They all say they care about their products and they care about their customers. I'm not sure if you've ever heard the story of the baker who suspected that the farmer who was supplying his butter was shorting him on the weight. His suspicions were confirmed when he carefully checked the weight of the butter for several days. Incensed, he had the farmer arrested. But the judge threw out the case when the farmer explained that he had no scales. So he used a one-pound loaf of bread that was purchased from the baker as his counterbalance. <laughs> it's kind of the way it goes. You know, we can fall prey to falsehood so easily. Speak the truth, we are told. And the funny thing about truth is that it's not always just the content of the words that we say, but it's the motivation behind them even. Like you could say something truthful to someone, but the only reason you're speaking that truth to them is so that you can get the upper hand. Maybe you want to be able to prove somebody wrong, or maybe it benefits you in some way. We need to be careful even in the way we speak the truth if it is a true motivation. It actually, it happens in marriage as well. We use phrases like, you know, you always do this, or you're always like that. And maybe they've been at points, but the intent is to prove yourself right and to be justified. And it leads to cycles of harmful communication. You know, it does it in society, it does it in marriages, and, and it happens in churches as well. You know, sometimes we don't tell the truth because we're afraid also of what it might cost us. That's another angle of it. Sometimes it's costly to tell the truth. We don't want to go there because it'll be hard. Telling the truth can be difficult. I mean, you can think of the case of Samuel's sons we looked at just a few months ago. They turn out to be greedy and corrupt because Samuel didn't deal with it. First Samuel chapter 8, you'll hear about that. Wasn't truthful with his kids about their way of life. Same thing happened with David. You know, his unwillingness and his inability to deal with family conflict in his kids, it leads to civil war in 2 Samuel all the way from chapter 13 through 19. He didn't speak truth to them. It was costly. And so here together, we are to be a community that does speak the truth in love. Not being deceitful with one another, but being truthful. Speaking truthfully, being people of truth in our actions. And if we don't, the outcomes, they're not good. And that's a radically different community when we can all do that together. This is one way that we are to be formed together as a community. So put away falsehood and speak the truth to one another. We need to be in close relationship one another for this to happen. The second thing that he talks about is not to sin in your anger. It says this in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now that's kind of an interesting one because first of all it says be angry. Now that's kind of unusual, isn't it? Like to tell, for the Bible to tell us be angry. Like I get angry a lot. And I have to be careful how much news or podcasts or, you know, those hot take videos that we can watch. I got to watch because I can get consumed. I can get kind of riled up in it. 
and I can easily get angered at the world or at culture. Some of that is probably justified, but I have to be careful not to allow it to give the devil an opportunity. Because once the anger starts to come up, it's really easy for the devil to start to use that in, in his ways. Because this first doesn't mean that all, say, all anger is sin, though. I mean, God hates sin, and, and we should as well. But I tell you, as soon as anger kicks in, we have to be really, really careful. It's so easy to allow that anger to take us to dark places, and we really have to fight back against that. How are we dealing with the anger? Now, we know the instances of Jesus' anger. It happened in his own life and ministry, turning over the tables at the temple. When he was asked questions about healing on the Sabbath, he was angry. You know, what we see, though, is that Jesus' anger... It just wasn't pure, unadulterated anger. It was an anger that was mixed with grief. There was this element of grief that went in because it grieved him of what was happening and the lies that lay behind it. And that's an important element. I mean, sin should grieve us. And so in our anger, there should be this mingling of grief. Do you spot the sin? Do you see the sin when you're consuming media? When you watch shows, when... You see people's interactions. And do these things grieve you? you know, the other thing that's interesting in this passage that I've often heard from it is like, and sometimes like in older marriage seminars or, or couples who have said that they've kept this as a rule in their marriage. Maybe you've heard this verse in that context. They never went to sleep angry at each other. They always made up before their heads hit the pillow. That's a nice idea. I, ideal. It's maybe not always possible. You know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, I can't say I've always been able to do that super successfully. In fact, what I found is that if we have a disagreement or if we're angered by what the other person has said or done, it gets magnified by like a thousand times, I'll say like maybe after 11 p.m. <laughs> it used to probably be more like midnight or one, but we're getting older. And so, you know, start to get crankier earlier on in the evening now. But I mean, I don't want to really start an argument when I'm overtired and when it's the middle of the night. That could be problematic. Probably the worst thing I could do would be to have an argument at one in the morning. So does that mean that I have given the devil an opportunity if everything isn't settled by sundown? Well, if you look at where this verse comes from, Paul's loosely quoting here from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, that says this. It says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Well, that's interesting because it almost sounds like it's the opposite. It's also saying that it's recognizing that anger is possible and that it happens and also don't sin in that anger. But in this one, it tells you to just remain silent, remain in your bed and be silent. So the psalmist says, be angry, don't sin. But then there seems to be the instruction to lie down, to think about things first before you go shooting your mouth off. And that's probably not a bad idea. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do is to keep your mouth shut and to ponder it for a short time before you respond. Sometimes you say things quickly in outbursts that you wouldn't otherwise say if you had just thought about it for a moment. And I actually think that's what Paul has in mind too as we're reading this here and how we are to deal with one another as well. If we read it with a hyper-literal understanding, then we would have to do this before 5 p.m. in the winter and 9 p.m. in the summer. Or if you lived in the Northwest Territories where the sun is either always up or always down, then you'd be really messed up and not sure how to interpret this passage. But I think what Paul is saying is that, you know, we should never get angry and then just leave it. Like, don't let it sit. Don't let it linger. Keep what we might say short accounts with one another. Let the sun set on it. Don't let the sun set on it. 
You know, we should always keep short accounts with each other. We should deal with the anger, either that day or the next. It has to be done quickly. That's, I believe this is what it's saying by it's saying, don't let the sun come down on it. It needs to be done soon. Sometimes you might need to give it, though, a few hours to cool off. But don't let the sun go down on it. Don't let that anger sink in or watch out. All of a sudden, it's going to start doing something within us and in our hearts. I mean, you'll remember the disagreement in the Philippian church between Iodia and Syntyche. We're not sure what it was. We're not told what this disagreement that these two women had together. But there was a sharp disagreement that they had. And it was obviously causing some disruption in their church family, in the community. And when Paul writes the letter to the church, he encourages them to agree in the Lord. Agree together in the Lord, he says to them. And, and he calls on, on the rest of the church to help them in doing this. He calls the leadership, actually, to help them in doing this. And this may not be uh, necessarily that they're going to have the same mind on this disagreement, but this they can do. They can agree together in the Lord. They may not see things the same way. They may not have the exact same thoughts about what it is that they're having this disagreement about, but they are able, because Christ is at the center, to agree together in the Lord. And that is a powerful thing to be able to do. It doesn't necessarily mean sameness, but it means that there is forgiveness and humility that is offered together and this common understanding that Jesus is the most important and we're not going to allow anything to get in the midst of us that could drive a wedge or distract from that. So deal with your anger, we are told. Also, talks about this idea of no dishonesty, but rather work hard in verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this topic, but be assured that the community of Christ should be known as people who are hard workers. The best workers, I would actually say. If you're an employer, you should be the best employers your workers have ever worked for. These are the kind of people we attain to be. If you're an employee, which most of us are in the position of being, we should be the hardest working, the most honest employees that our bosses have had on staff. Our work is a testimony to Christ. And make no mistake, we are living in an era where we sometimes can see entitlement creeping in, creeps into the workplace. We've all heard the reports of how hard it is to find good workers. A Christian employee is not entitled. They're honest and they're hardworking. At one time, they may not have been, this verse states. At one time, the Ephesians were dishonest. And some of them might have had to steal in order to get by. They had become thieves because of their desperate situation. But no more. Paul says, this is not the way that we go about our work anymore. He says, do honest work. I mean, there's people that look at exactly how many sick days that they are given in a month, and they make sure they use them, whether they're legitimately sick or not. Is that a good testimony to Christ? You know, so many people don't have this idea of how to work hard. They were never taught maybe in their homes, and it was never encouraged in their young adult life. Parents, it's so important. Teach your kids the value of hard work, cleaning your room, taking care of your business, doing chores. It will set them up for success in life. It'll be a strong testimony to their faith in Jesus. And as this verse says, it will enable them then to be able to help others. When you take care of your business, you're able to help others who need help taking care of their business. 
They'll have enough to share with others who are in need. And this is an important element of our work. I hear stories all the time of many of your successes and accomplishments, and it's awesome. And we can do these things because we have a greater purpose behind it. It's all a gift from God. The work that we have been given, the ability to do the work that we have been given, all of this is a gift from God, and so we work hard with our hands. And this creates an amazing community when we come together of people who are willing to do this. You remember the story of Zacchaeus. I think he's just like a perfect example of what this verse is saying. In Luke chapter 19, I mean, he was known as being a sinner. When Jesus was together with him, they're like, what is he doing with this guy who we know is a sinner? This chief tax collector who was scrupulous in the way he was taking tax, going above and beyond, taking more than he should have. This was his way of life. But then he meets Jesus. And after he meets Jesus, everything changes. He meets Jesus and his life has changed. And he says, I am going to give back even more than everything that I have took. And, and I'm going to give away half of all that I own. Four times more I'm going to give back, and I'm going to give back twice or half of everything that I have. When he met Jesus, all of a sudden he went from what the first half of verse 28 was talking about to what is talked about in, in the uh, second half, to be able to share with others who also have a need. It's a life transformed, so obviously seen in a short few verses in Luke chapter 19. And this is what we are called to be able to be as well. To be those who are not dishonest, but those who work hard. And in our working hard, we're able to share with others who have need. We're able to bless those who are around us through that. It's a great way to live and to build community together. The fourth is, he talks about in verse 29 to 31, about corrupt speaking, but rather building up one another and giving grace to one another. So once again, he says this, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. All of those things, he says, put them all away. Now that kind of speech that's being talked about in these verses is the kind you often hear online. You know, if you spend much time online, you'll hear this kind of talk and speech and interaction regularly. It's a place where that kind of thing is actually rewarded. The words that are being used here, though, they carry the imagery of them being rotten. This kind of speech, it's like rotten in your mouth. It's like rotting fruit or rotting fish is the idea of what's being talked about when these kind of things come out of our mouths when we speak this way. But rather, he says, we're called to speak the truth in love. The kind of speech that builds up. The kind of speech that builds a person up and offers grace to them. The Christian life involves constant encouragement of others. And if your disposition is critical or it's cynical and there's no warmth or there's no encouragement in the way in which you speak to others, you will not be a good leader. You won't be a good leader in your job, in your family, or in your church. It can be easier to practice affirmation earlier in a relationship than it can be later. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or witnessed it. The more you're comfortable with someone, the more difficult it can be to offer this kind of speech to them. It was very easy at the beginning when you were getting to know them. And that's true in marriage and it's true in churches as well. You know, in the courting phase and the honeymoon phase, it can be easy to be nice. 
You know, but what about as time moves on and you get really comfortable together? Sometimes that's when we let things slip. We're not as closely guarded anymore. We feel a little bit too safe and secure in this relationship and we say things that we shouldn't say. It's easy for all of us to fall into that. I speak personally. But we're not to speak that way. We're to offer grace, build one another up, give grace in the way in which we speak to them. It makes a huge difference in the way in which we'll be able to be together in these kind of communities in the long term. We can't be in it for the short game. It's something we carry on doing. We have to continue to struggle in doing this. Speaking in ways that benefit the other person, not in ways that will corrupt them. But once again, obviously we need to be in deep relationships with one another for any of these things to even be an issue. Not much of a chance any of these things are going to happen if we just duck in and out. We want to be on this journey together, serving together, spurring on love and good deeds with one another, building each other up, forgiving when forgiveness is needed. This is the mark of a community. And it's the scripture is very honest that there are times when disagreements come. There are times when anger comes in. But how are we going to deal with these things together that doesn't seek to corrupt and to tear down, but rather to build up and to offer grace to one another? Because even in our sin and even in our anger, there's opportunities for this to be the way with Jesus as our center. And so finally then, it gives us this motivation to do it. Which is, how can we do this in verse 30? And verse 32, I think, are our marks of like, how can we do this? This is tough stuff to do. And in verse 30, we're given one, and in 32, another. 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then 32 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how can we do this? Well, I think we consider what our sinful patterns of relating to each other do. They grieve God. When we operate together in this way, it grieves the Holy Spirit, it says. When we don't get along, when we say improper things to one another, when we are hard or when we are calloused and when we're critical of one another, it grieves God. And you know what it's like as a parent to see your kids fighting? You know, maybe they never do that, but I'm sure on occasion it happens. You'll know a little bit then about this grieving. The Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. He lives within you. And when you harbor dysfunctional relationships with your brothers and sisters, there will be all kinds of angst going on within you, and it'll spread throughout the community as well. And so we consider in doing this, that when we do not, it grieves God, his Holy Spirit. And then secondly, in verse 32, we can also do this because he has done this for us. You know, verse 32, it can almost seem like a bit of a tag on, because he's talked about all of these things, and then he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The ultimate example of truth and love is forgiveness. What forgiveness does is that acknowledges that a wrong has been committed. And then it acts in love by offering costly forgiveness. You see, someone always has to pay for forgiveness to be extended. Either the perpetrator pays or else the victim pays. But a price always has to be, always has to be paid when forgiveness is offered. Be honest when you've been hurt. And then love the person by bearing that cost yourself. Are we willing to do that? To humble ourselves in that way. Why are we able to do this? Because that's what's been done for you and the cost was way higher than what you will have to pay in order to forgive others. 
You see, Jesus went to the cross because of his commitment to truth. When Jesus was arrested and he was before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king? And you see, if Jesus tells the truth here, he dies. He gives them what they need. He is not a king in the sense that Pilate was thinking about, but he is a king and he acknowledges that the way in which he is a king to Pilate. And he says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. That means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy and he reveals the true God. I have come, he says, to bear witness to truth. This is the ultimate truth, the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, revealing the true God. This baffles Pilate, and Pilate borrows a line from one of Johnny Cash's song when he asks Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? He didn't get it. He didn't see it. A lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? As the song goes. But Pilate is asking, what is this? He didn't see it. He didn't see the truth was standing right before him. Do you see it? See, if you do, you can offer forgiveness to others. You see the way in which it has been extended to you in the most radical, the most costly way. You can be kind to one another. You can be tender-hearted to one another. You can offer forgiveness to one another when you see the way Christ has forgiven you the way that God has forgiven you through Jesus Christ. And it's not because it's this kind of an existential right thing to do that we do these things, but because forgiveness and truth lives inside of you. This is the new community that we're called to be in the church as the body of Christ. So as we build this community together, let's commit to these things. Let's commit to speaking the truth to each other to not sin in our anger, to work hard, and to use speech that builds up others and that gives grace. We are able to do this because this has been done for you. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful when we come to a passage like this of what we are reminded of. The ultimate forgiveness has been given to us. God in Christ has forgiven us and so we are recipients of the greatest act of kindness and mercy and forgiveness that could ever be offered, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as a result, that allows us to be this new community together. And so, Father, I thank you for the way in which, though many of these virtues are seen within our community here, we have been blessed by great relationships together, by some relationships here that have lasted decades and decades and decades and still continue to move forward together in health and in unity and in joy and in hope. That's an amazing thing, God. And so we thank you so much for what you have done here. And we pray you, your continual uh, blessing on us as we go forward in this way, that we would be a community that genuinely cares for one another, speaks truthfully towards one another, is tender-hearted towards one another, is able to forgive one another when uh, the grievances of life come up between us, and even when anger starts to spur its head, Lord, that we would deal with these things in a way that is right, in a way that is helpful, in the way in which you have called us to. And so, Father, we pray that you would protect that kind of unity here together among us and that together we would be able to show the world in this community that you have placed us within that here is a group of people that has a, a completely different way of living 
in a way that lives hopeful, in a way that is joyful, in a way that just attracts other people towards Jesus Christ as a result. So may we live this faithfully amongst our neighbors that we are here together with. So thank you, God, for what you have done and for what you are continuing to do here among us. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen.